Well, as we open God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking for God's blessing on our time. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and you have revealed the truth of life and salvation and the history of the the world. Most of all, we thank you that you have revealed your son, that we today in the 21st century might know him and might walk in newness of life. I pray this morning as we turn once again to his teaching. May you help us to hear the voice of Christ. May you help us to learn all that he has for us. And may we grow in our love and adoration for him. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to take a stab, a guess, at how much of the Bible contains predictive prophecy, what would you say? I found that by one count, 27% of the Bible is composed of predictive prophecy, a word that was given about something that will take place in the future. And this means that over one-fourth of your Bible is filled with truths that's revealing something that has yet to take place. Now, that means that has yet to take place at the time it was written, Since these things have been written, about half of those predictive prophecies have already been fulfilled. And let me just say that fulfilled prophecy is one of the underdogs when it comes to believing in and trusting in the veracity of the Scriptures. Let us not forget that, again, half of the predictive prophecies that were given in the Bible have already come to pass. God's Word has been proven true over and over again, and therefore we can trust it for what still lies into the future. But it's estimated that there are about 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ. Okay, about roughly 300 Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ. And about a hundred of those were fulfilled at his first advent. When Jesus came the first time, about a hundred of those prophecies were fulfilled, which, doing the simple math, leaves us about 200 that are left yet unfulfilled and will be fulfilled at his second coming, his second advent. And so it's important that we, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, understand when Jesus will come back and what will accompany his return. We cannot be sitting idly by. We must be looking expectantly to his return. The great London preacher of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, said that every morning the Christian should get up and and go to the window that's at the east and look out the window and say, is Christ coming today? Ah, not today. Maybe tomorrow. We should be having a daily expectation that it could be today. But let us not be mistaken. We do not await the coming of Christ as if we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and go, well, I hope he comes back today. No, Jesus wants us to be busy There's things that we must occupy ourselves with. We we must be busy about his work 
active in serving and and in preaching and telling the word, sharing the word of God and discipling and doing all the things that he's outlined for us in his word. And on top of that, not only to be busy about doing things and activities, but we also need to be circumspect about our own lives. Jesus wants us to be walking in purity and in holiness, to think about how we live, the decisions that we make, that we would be ready for when he comes. His arrival should not surprise us. And that was Jesus' heart. He didn't want his return to surprise his people. And so he gave much teaching on what his return, what his arrival would be like. And one of the key places that he describes that is in what we've been looking at starting last week, the Olivet Discourse. And we found this in Luke 21. And so I invite you to turn there, if you're not there already, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. We've been systematically working our way through the Gospel of Luke and we happen to land in this great eschatological teaching by Jesus known as the Olivet Discourse. It's called a discourse because it's simply a speech. It's the Olivet because it was given on the Mount of Olives or known as Luke gives it here in 21 verse 37, a mount called Olivet. Now we looked at how the, last week at how this teaching was sparked by questions posed by the disciples after Jesus made an astounding prediction of the destruction and the fate of the Jerusalem temple. Today we're going to look more closely at this text and understand what is going on as we begin to make our way through this important critical passage. But let's begin by reading a portion of this. We're not going to read all verses 5 through 38 this morning. We'll just read verses 5 through verse 11. And so I invite you to please follow along as I read Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and Tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths on all our hearts this morning. As we continue to look at this critical passage, I want us to look at this morning three pieces of the biblical storyline that will help us to better understand what the future holds. Jesus wants his followers to know what is coming in the future, and we need to know it as well. And when we understand this, when we understand what is laid out before us, we will be at peace during his absence, and we'll be ready and prepared for his return. So, Let's begin by looking at 
the first piece of a biblical storyline to help us set the context for what is, is revealed in this passage, and that is first the outline of end-time events. I want us to pull back from this passage specifically and to look more broadly at what the Bible gives us in terms of an outline of end-time events. This is what is found not just in this passage, but laid out throughout the Scriptures. And as we get this understanding, this broad outline, this broad overview, then as we burrow down into this text of the, of the Olivet Discourse, we're going to better understand what Jesus is saying here and how it fits with everything else. So the first end times event that I want to mention is called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. And this is a term that is used throughout the Old Testament and is then picked up in the New Testament as well. So what is it? What is the day of the Lord? A helpful definition I found is this. The day of the Lord is the period of time in the future when the Lord will intervene in the events of this earth to consummate His redemption and His judgment. It's a period of time in the future when the Lord will intervene in the events of this earth to consummate His redemption and His judgment. Here you see that it's a time in the future, and it's when the Lord Himself will come and intervene in the events of the earth, and it involves His redemption and His judgment. And as we look in the uses of the day of the Lord in the Bible, we find these themes of of redemption as well as judgment We could turn to many passages in the Old Testament that mention it. One such verse is Obadiah. Obadiah, verse 15. There's only one chapter. That's why it says Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This threat of judgment that would come at the day of the Lord. But there is lots of detail in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord. In fact, I want you to turn back with me to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. What is sometimes jokingly called the white pages of our Bible. We don't turn to these minor prophets all that much. But uh, very important for us to understand what is going on and what the Lord has prophesied, what will take place. Zephaniah found in the middle of the minor prophets, not minor because they're less important, but minor because they're simply shorter than the major prophets, but no less important. Zephaniah chapter 1, pick up in verse 14. Let's see what Zephaniah has to say. What does he predict is coming as a part of this day of the Lord? Zephaniah 1 verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind." So that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither the silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. 
bit more graphic, isn't it? A bit more detail. This is a time of great judgment. But this term, the day of the Lord, is also picked up in the New Testament. This isn't just, oh, those Old Testament prophets speaking about the day of the Lord and using their you know, prophetic voice to get all graphic and dramatic. No, Paul picks it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul's not ashamed to use that terminology to say this is what is, is coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter, the apostle, also uses it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, you get this picture of great devastation, of great wrath that comes on the day of the Lord when he comes to personally bring his vengeance upon this earth. And so as we look at the uses, we don't have time to, to do a full study on the day of the Lord this morning, but if we looked at them, we'd see that it can be used in a broad way and a narrow way. Broadly, hence the, the as you'll see, this box on the screen is meant to, to cover the broad aspect of the day of the Lord. It has to do with everything surrounding uh, the end time events, from judgment to salvation, from his second coming, and so forth. But it can also be used narrowly to describe the specific day that Jesus himself returns, the second coming, more specifically, more narrowly. So day of the Lord can be used narrowly to be used of his second coming, and also used broadly all the events that are surrounding the end times. So we need to recognize the day of the Lord kind of encapsulates all these things, but the, as we then think about this broad thing of the day of the Lord, what begins the day of the Lord? What begins to set it off? First will be the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, as I said, we're getting a broad outline of these things, and so it requires us to see a few different passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get the teaching that the church will be caught up in the air and will be saved from the wrath that is to come, this wrath that will be unleashed on the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here we see that the church is caught up in the air. The dead in Christ are raised. Those who have died in Jesus are raised first. And we who are alive at the time that Jesus comes back will be caught up in the air and will meet him in the air. This coincides with what Paul then says in the next chapter, 
Chapter 5, verse 9, where he says that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not destined to experience the wrath of God that will be poured out on the world through the day of the Lord. That when verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where it says we're not destined for wrath, what's the closest context to talk about wrath? Well, it's the day of the Lord that's mentioned just a few verses previously. Jesus also described the same reality in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What is this hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth that, that he's going to keep believers from? He's going to preserve them from? That's what we know as the tribulation, and that's the next event. We have the rapture of the church, and then we have the tribulation period. This is a seven-year period to further describe this wrath that will be poured out on the earth that we've talked about in terms of the day of the Lord. During the tribulation, He will judge the nations for their unbelief and for their wickedness. He will also bring Israel to its knees. He will cause Israel to repent and to ultimately to confess Jesus as their Savior. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 9 that this period is a seven-year period, and we also know from Daniel 9 that it's, there's an event that splits that seven period, the seven years, into two three-and-a-half-year periods. Now, we're not going to… we'll have, take a future week to look at the details of Daniel 9 so you can see where that comes from. But we, it is there that he describes this as a seven-year period known as the, the tribulation. And so again, two different halves. The first half, the first half of the tribulation is known as the beginning of the birth pangs. The beginning of the birth pains. As we'll see, we'll show you this morning, in Matthew 24, Jesus describes the many events that will take place uh, in the future and calls them the beginning of the birth pains. We just need to know that these birth pains coincide with Revelation chapter 6, and therefore these take place in the first half of the tribulation period. But there's, a, there's, a point, there's an event in the midpoint that splits this tribulation period known as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation, that's at the midpoint. And this is where the Antichrist will break the covenant with the nation of Israel, and he will place the abomination of desolation in the temple. Again, we'll look at this event in more detail in future weeks in Daniel chapter 9, but it's important because Jesus references this abomination of desolation from Daniel in the Olivet Discourse. He wants us to know what that says. So we just need to know for now that stands at the midpoint of the tribulation. But the second half of the tribulation then is known as the Great Tribulation. The judgments intensify in this second half. And it coincides with the trumpet and the bold judgments of Revelation and it's a time of unparalleled suffering upon the earth. In fact, it says that if God hadn't cut the day short, if He hadn't stopped, then there, every human being would be wiped out. But after the tribulation, Jesus will then return. The second coming of Christ comes after the tribulation. He will be revealed from heaven, and He will come to destroy His enemies and to save His people. Revelation 19 describes this glorious return. And then after Jesus returns, He sets up His kingdom. This is what we know as the millennial kingdom of Christ. 
He will reign upon this earth. His feet will actually touch the soil once again upon this earth. Now, why can't He just reign in heaven? Why does He got to come back to reign? I believe it's because of the way that the first Adam failed in the garden. You'll remember that back in Genesis chapter 1, that God set man, created mankind in His image and set him in the garden to take dominion, to subdue the earth. They were to be the vice regents, the representatives to rule in God's place upon God's earth. They were His image bearers here upon the planet. But we blew it. We believed the lies of the devil, and therefore we lost our ability to be able to reign and rule righteously in God's place. We couldn't accurately represent God. We couldn't accurately be His image bearers. But God promised there in the garden that there would be one day a man who would be born of a woman who would defeat the devil and rightly rule upon this earth. And we know that it was Jesus is that one who was promised and prophesied of. He was the promised son of David who would sit upon the throne, Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. He would defeat Israel's enemies. He would restore her as a nation. And as we've seen so far in Luke's gospel, Jesus offered himself as the king to Israel. And yet, she refused to believe in him, refused to accept him. And therefore, the kingdom was postponed. In that future day, when Jesus returns, Jesus, who is the second Adam, the true and better Adam, will finally reign upon this earth in the way, or in order to fulfill, I should say, what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam failed to rule upon this earth in righteousness, but the second Adam will finally do so. And Revelation 20 tells us of that fact, and that it will be a thousand-year reign. Many passages throughout the Scriptures tell of this reign of Christ, but it's particularly in Revelation 20 that describes the length of a thousand years. Now, once this thousand years are over, then we get to eternity, what is known as the new heavens and the new earth. When we talk about heaven we talk about living eternally with God forever, this is what we're talking about. The new heavens and the new earth. This is described in Revelation 21 and 22. And I want you to turn to Revelation 21 with me and just see the beginning descriptions of this place. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, the second to last chapter in the Bible, John the Apostle recounts what he sees in his vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, this is a picture of what will be. It has not taken place yet. We await the new heavens and new earth when all things will be made new, when death will be no more. But you can see here that the destiny of the saved and the destiny of the unsaved is very, very stark. There is one that will be ushered into a a time and a period of great joy in which they will experience unhindered fellowship with God. And the others will be cast into the lake of fire in which there will be eternal torment forever, known as the second death. This description, church, should cause us to long for this day, that we would see this day when everything will be made right. All of us want to be in a perfect place, do we not? But the question is, how do we get there? How do we know that we're going to be on the right side in that day? Well, it's clear that how we live our lives in this life determines where we will spend eternity. And so I ask you, are you ready for these end times events to come about? Do you know where you will spend eternity? Do you know where you will be when Christ returns? We each need to evaluate our lives and see that we have trusted and believed in Christ. Because by ourselves, on our own, none of us can save ourselves from the the peril that we all deserve. We all deserve to, to experience the second death because of our sin. Our righteousness, whatever good deeds we think we have, is really just filthy rags, the Bible says. And therefore, we deserve to experience the second death. If there is anybody who will not experience that second death and instead will experience sonship, experience what it means to be in the family of God, it's because of the mercy of God. It's because He has saved sinners unto Himself. So this gives us a broad outline of these end times events. Let me show it in a different graphical format into a, uh, a, a chart. And uh, this gives it, presents it more in terms of a, of a timeline that goes from left to right. All the same events that you just saw on the other chart is, is here. If you start on the left, you have the rapture of the church going into the tribulation with the two different halves, the beginning of the birth pangs, the central event, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second half of the, of the tribulation, then the second coming of Christ in which he sets up his messianic kingdom, which then merges into the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father, and that goes on into eternity. 
So this is a broad outline of end times events, but let's look secondly now at the sequence of the Olivet Discourse. Now that we kind of have this broad view of what the Bible talks about in terms of what will take place in the future, let's then look at exactly what Jesus is saying, the sequence he gives. And so I invite you to turn back with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We're going to flip between Luke 21 and Matthew 24 to get some of these details this morning. And here in Luke 21, particularly in verse 7, I want us to look at the question the disciples ask. Luke 21 verse 7 says, And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So here we see two questions, a when question and a what question. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when they're about to take place? And this was... What prompted these questions? Well, it was the prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says in verse 6 that the stones of the temple are going to be thrown down. And they say, well, when's that going to happen, Jesus? But here we have two questions. We need to compare these two questions with Matthew's two questions. So let's turn over to Matthew 24. Keeping your fingers nimble this morning. Matthew 24, verse 3, we get the parallel verse to what we just read in Luke. It says, Matthew 24, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us what, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now you can have a slide that shows these two questions side by side. And we can see there's great similarity between them, but there's also some differences. The first question is identical. When will these things be? The second question, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They want to know about when Jerusalem is destroyed, but then they ask this question about Jesus' coming and the end of the age. And someone might ask, how do the disciples go from this prediction about the temple being destroyed to then suddenly talking about the end of the age? It seems like it's a little bit of a jump. But I believe that most likely when they heard Jesus' prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem, that what sparked in their mind was Zechariah 14. And we're not going to turn there this morning, but in that passage, it describes a future time when Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, they'll be attacked, build a siege around Jerusalem, but at that moment, the Lord himself will return and rescue Israel and establish his kingdom on earth. And so, in Zechariah 14, the pattern is tribulation for Israel then the return of the Lord to rescue the people of Israel, and then God's kingdom. And so they hear, oh, Jesus, the Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? They're going to be attacked? Well, is that going to set off Zechariah 14 is basically what their question is. Are you going to return? Is the end of the age going to happen? Is the kingdom coming? Now, disciples, in many ways, were not talking about his second coming because they didn't really believe Jesus was going away. Remember, they didn't really believe the predictions about his death. They still thought he was going to be there. They just thought he would manifest himself in his, in his messianic uh, victory. And so, as uh, Dr. Michael Vlock says, 
He says, quote, they were asking Jesus when he would manifest himself as Israel's Messiah in power and glory. The manifestation of the Messiah would also mean the end of the present evil age and the inauguration of Messiah's kingdom and the blessings promised in the Old Testament prophets. So even though they were asking about the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a lot more that was packed into their questions. There was a lot more answers that they were looking for, and Jesus will touch on these other issues as well. As I said last week, there are some who want to see the, the Olivet Discourse as only speaking about the events of the first century. And there are others who want to see the events as only speaking about all that will take place in the distant future. But I believe that this Scripture, the Olivet Discourse, touches on both the near horizon, 70 AD, and the distant horizon, the end times. And so to see this, let's look at the sequence of Jesus' answers. We saw the questions. Now let's see how Jesus answers them in a broad sort of way this morning. We'll go into more detail in future weeks. But we need to pay attention particularly to words that give us clues about sequence or time. And so let's first see this here in Matthew 24, if you're there already with me. We see in verse 3, as we already saw, the disciples' question. And then verse 4 he, this is Matthew 24, verse 4, he begins to answer his question, that the, their questions. And then we see, in, look in verse 8, he says, all these things, all these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. The be- beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. After these things, they will deliver you up. And then look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Here's a key, the key event I talked to you about at the midpoint of the tribulation, the, the abomination of desolation. And then verse 21, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This is that second half of the tribulation, what's called the great tribulation. But then, look in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Here we now come, there's a part of the sequence is to go after the tribulation. Jesus is not just talking about the tribulation period, but also the events that are following after it. Immediately after. And then verse 30 then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus returns. So we have the beginning of the tribulation, the midpoint of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, then after the tribulation, Jesus returns. Let's turn back to Luke 21 and see what sequence we see there. Luke chapter 21. Again, we're picking up the flow of Jesus' words so that we understand what's the narrative arc of what he's sharing in this discourse. Now, Luke 21 is similar material, but it's not identical. Look at verse 8. We already saw verse 7, the questions. Verse 8, he begins his answer. And, but then... Uh, verse 8 through 11 really coincides with what we saw in Matthew 24 of those beginning of the birth pains. It's the same kind of events that he's talking about. But then look at verse 12. 
But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. That's a key time word. All these things, the beginning of the tribulation will happen. But verse 12, before all of that, something else is going to happen. I believe he's speaking about the events that will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem and particularly in the lives of the apostles. And because then we get in verse 20 through 24. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. This is 70 AD. This is when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. Verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. This will happen to Jerusalem, Jesus predicts, and it did happen in 70 AD. Jerusalem will remain trampled underfoot until the times the Gentiles are fulfilled, which means that Jerusalem won't forever be trampled underfoot. There will be a time when it will be restored. But then verse 25 And there will be signs in the sun and moon. Verse 26, people fainting with fear. And verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Here we get to that period which Matthew revealed was after the tribulation is the second coming of Christ. And so by combining these two accounts together, we can see that Jesus prophesies both about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and at the end of the age at his return. I believe it's too simplistic to say that everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. Or it's too simplistic to say everything awaits a future fulfillment. It's more complex than that. And so we need to be wise and discerning as we understand what Jesus says. So we've looked at two pieces of this biblical storyline to help us understand what is coming. We've seen the outline of end time events. We've seen the sequence of this Olivet Discourse. And finally this morning, let's finished by looking at the beginning of the birth pangs, the beginning of the birth pangs. And this is, we see in Luke 21, verses 8 through 11. We're not going to be able to go into detail of these this morning, but as we noted when we went through Matthew 24, Jesus characterized these phenomenological signs as the beginning of the birth pains. Here he says in Luke, and look at, follow along in verse 8, he says, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go out after them. And when you hear of wars and, room, and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Again, this, these signs will accompany or are, are labeled in Matthew 24 as the beginning of the birth pains. Now, that very label sounds strange, uh, and, and, but we need to understand the Old Testament background that comes with this. Why is it called the beginning of the birth pains? Why did Jesus call it that? Well, you can turn with me to Jeremiah 30, verses 1 through 7, and we'll see the Old Testament background for the usage of this phrase. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30 verse 1 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and, of, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Do you see these themes of restoration, of judgment, and particularly describing this time as a time of distress for Jacob, and it's like birth pains, he says. And this concept was then picked up. You get, there's lots of other Old Testament passages that also talk about judgment in the language of birth pains. But it, and so it was picked up in Judaism. One scholar uh, of Jewish writings wrote this about how the Jews understood the, the end times. He says, a prominent feature of Jewish eschatology, as represented especially by rabbinic literature, was the time of trouble preceding Messiah's coming. It was called the birth pangs of the Messiah, sometimes more briefly translated as the messianic woes. They understood that before the Messiah was going to come, there was going to be this time of intense suffering and pain that would come upon the world, a time of distress, and so it was characterized like birth pains. Just like the pain of bearing children for a woman, so too the world would go through great pain in bringing about the messianic age. Pastor John MacArthur helpfully explains the, the parallel in this metaphor of the future days. He says this, he says, labor pains do not begin until shortly before delivery time, and they occur with increasing frequency until the baby is born. In the same way, the events connected with the Lord's return will not begin until just before His return, and they will occur with increasing rapidity, building up to an explosion of catastrophic events. It'll begin slower, and then it'll begin to pick up as the tribulation period goes on, increasing frequency, increasing intensity. And as I mentioned earlier, these coincide with what we read in Revelation chapter 6, the sealed judgments. And so when the tribulation begins, there'll be a number of features that characterize this beginning of the birth pains. These are not yet the hard labor. These are not yet the full labor. The end is not yet, but it identifies that the end is very soon. Now, Paul picked up this metaphor when he was teaching the Thessalonians. And I want you to turn there, and this is where we'll end this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here, I've already quoted some verses out of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul is teaching on the day of the Lord. He's talking about end times events and the counsel to the church in Thessalonica. And he picks up on this very reality of not only the day of the Lord, but also the birth pains that come with the day of the Lord. So follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But, verse 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Church, that day should not surprise us. As Paul says, we are in the know. We have been taught. We know what is coming and we should be prepared for what is coming for that day of the Lord. Our eyes have been opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul here calls us that we are children of the day. Church, we are children of the light, children of the day, and therefore we walk in the knowledge that has been revealed to us. We should be humbled. We should be thankful that we are no longer children of the night, that we are no longer in darkness, that we have had the light shine upon us. But Paul makes it clear that when the day of the Lord comes, it will surprise people. They will be shocked. They will think that everything is going fine. They live in peace and security. They think their life is just good. That they, how they're living their life, how they're making decisions, how they're setting the course and setting the agenda of their life is just fine. But Paul says, it's going to come on them suddenly. It's going to surprise them like a thief in the night, and it's going to be intense like labor pains upon a woman. With a crowd this size, I would imagine there are some of you here today who can be characterized as still in darkness. You're living your life as if everything's fine. You're setting the agenda for your life. You're deciding how you're going to live. You have not surrendered to the Lord at all. I pray that you hear the warning of this text and of the scriptures that there is a day of wrath that is coming. You can try to stuff it out of your mind, but it is, it is coming. The Lord who created us and who has set the direction for world history has decided that it will come. But today is a day of patience and of salvation so that you might hear the gospel this morning, so that you might turn from your wicked ways and following after your own sin and rebellion and instead turn in repentance to Jesus. He's being patient with you this morning that you might hear his word and that you might turn in faith that you might escape that future day, that you might escape that future wrath. And I pray that you would not further harden your heart this morning, but you would recognize what indeed is coming, that you would heed that warning, and that you would bow before King Jesus and confess him as Lord, that you might one day experience the fellowship of seeing him face to face. Please don't leave this morning without knowing where you will spend eternity. We want to help you to know that. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word that clearly outlines the truth that there is a day that is coming, that Jesus is coming back to save his own people and to judge the nations for their unrighteousness. But Father, we thank you that we have your, your word, your truth that tells us 
exactly what will be. I pray that you would help each one of us to live circumspectly, to live wisely, and that we would seek to know Christ, that all here would not be surprised by that future day, but instead would openly embrace the Savior when he returns. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.